Hello and welcome to the second pilot episode of the still unnamed political podcast with myself, Mark Pack, and my fellow host, Stephen Tall. Now, last time, Stephen, you were dressed remarkably smartly, not only for a podcast recording, but frankly for 21st century life. Yeah. I, I noticed today, though, you have dressed down somewhat. Did, today, my, did today my comments get to you? It, they did indeed. Um, listen, last time, of course, I was in full dinner jacket, especially for you. This time I am in my dressed down garb uh, of, uh, of untucked shirt and jumper. So it's practical for the cold weather. That's my reasoning. And uh, our imaginary regular listener will be relieved to know that I am back in my normal attire of suit. No T-shirt available this time. So I'm feeling much more comfortable. Any of you who have tried to stalk me online will know it is extremely difficult to find any photos of me in which I'm not wearing a suit. Back to, back to normal garb. Um, and I, I guess the, the, the first thing really we should probably talk about is the very sad news uh, that has happened since, since our first recording of the passing away of Paddy Ashdown. Um, I was about to describe him as former Liberal Democrat leader, which is definitely an accurate way of describing him, but it does bring to mind that in his memoirs, uh, somebody who ended up being the leader of a political party uh, did so much else in his life that there is only one chapter on his political career. It is quite remarkable for a political party leader to have so much else in his life that he can fill out all the rest of a book with only the politics being in one chapter. Um, I think, Stephen, if I remember rightly, that you joined the party sort of after Paddy was leader, is that right? So you might not have quite as many fond memories of him as, as other longer-standing members. Yeah, that's right. I joined in uh, 1999, which was... Uh, just when he retired, not cause and effect, just um, um, the way it worked out in terms of me leaving Labour and joining the Lib Dems, and I guess uh, then being able to take part in the leadership contest that uh, that followed. Um, and like you say, it's it, I mean, obviously it's an incredibly sad um, uh, passing. Uh, that said, it was such a remarkable life, uh, and he packed so much into those 76 years mm. that that sadness is kind of offset by the... Um, huge memories that people will have of him and they weren't personal um, to me I guess the three things that um, when you think of Paddy uh, three things in my mind anyway um, are first of all just the way in which he rescued the Lib Dems from mm. the nadir um, of the post-merger um, debacle and you know took the party by the scruff of its neck almost literally uh, and I mean, he always used to say didn't he that uh, you know the party was pouring it um, 3% with an asterisk, which technically might have meant that there was no discernible support for the party. It's just uh, possible there may have been slight artistic license in that story that he retold, but it definitely the party was so far down in the polls that even our current opinion poll ratings <laughs> made it seem remarkably healthy compared yeah. to the near-death experience in, in, in the years after merger, in the immediate and the, years after yeah. merger. And the, and obviously the recovery was not just him, but he probably um, was the biggest mm. single... Um, factor in, in rescuing the Lib Dems. Then I guess you've got 1997 and the triumph of mm. um, doubling the number of MPs uh, coupled with perhaps the disappointment who knows, of, uh, of not actually entering into government as he planned with, uh, with Tony Blair. And then I guess you've got the 2010 um, section as well in terms mm. of his Lib Dem life of uh, the kind of pivotal role that he played I suppose in, um, in I, I guess the word is cheerleading um, for uh, the decision to enter the coalition and the support role he played for Nick Clegg um, as not least as chairman of the um, ill-fated uh, 2015 general mm. election campaign. So um, those are, I suppose, the three kind of mm. pivotal moments in the Lib Dem history yep. 
of, uh, of Paddy's life. Yeah, I mean, I think about that third one, I think it probably damaged his sort of popularity in the party much less than maybe people would have thought immediately at the time in sort of 2014, 2015, 2016. Um, perhaps for a couple of reasons. One is simply that, you know, the quip is that all political careers end in failure. Mm. Uh, Paddy actually resigned as leader in 99 at a time of his own choosing. Um, so it seemed like he had dodged the failure <laughs> uh, bullet there, but it caught up with him then a few years later. But that is the natural arc of a political career. So yeah. I think when you look back on someone's contributions, it's inevitable the final bit will be, you know, it is, is very often the bit that you you want to sort of gloss over slightly when paying tribute to somebody. Um, the other thing, though, is I think there is, um, if you think about the view that he took in sort of May, June 2010, that he very much wanted the party to be able to do a deal with Labour. Uh, but he came to the conclusion that there was no credible deal available yeah. with Labour. And therefore, if the only option on offer was a deal with the Conservatives, therefore, you know, you might not like it, but you have to make the best of the practical range of options available in front of Despite you. Despite Andrew Adonis's attempt to rewrite history exactly. and claim exactly. that actually Labour was queuing up to do a deal. No, indeed, Labour was queuing up to go on the media to say how much they didn't want indeed. to do a deal. Yeah. It, 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 it's quite amusing now to think about just how keen Labour politicians were to say, no, we'd rather have the Tories in power. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, one could almost say, you know, it, I wish that we had more politicians or sort of Paddy's stature and determination at the moment in that sense in mm. that Labour and the Tories seem stuffed full of politicians who faced with a range of unpalatable options simply go for the well let's go let, let's imagine some unicorn fairy uh, having cake eating cake pile of cliche thing that just is non-existent but that's yeah. what we're going to say that we really want Paddy was actually willing to face up to what are the practical options available um, and the third the, I guess the third reason I'd say I think uh, you know, Paddy's popularity recovered from that is actually my last, well, my penultimate memory of, of Paddy in person. Uh, both of the sort of final two memories at the party conference uh, last autumn. Uh, and and one of those is that he was speaking at the consultation session into Vince Cable's proposed party reforms. Mm -hmm. And in a way, everything about his contribution was set up for people in the room to not like it because he was specially picked out by the chair of the event, whilst everyone else had been putting their hands up and there were loads of people on speak. He was specially picked out. He was also given longer to speak than anyone else uh, had been given. And he didn't say it was more of a comment than a question, did he? He, he might have, but he, but he also had a working microphone when everyone else had not had a working <laughs> microphone. So everything was... Like he needed one. And he then was super loyal to the party leadership in what he said. So every element was there for people to be just really annoyed about, you know, why is he getting this extra time and he's got a working mic and he's just sort of playing the loyalist, etc. But it was a really powerful intervention that got really widespread and warm applause uh, from not quite everyone in the room because it was a controversial subject, but pretty much across... Uh, across the room and and I was slightly surprised until that applause kicked in I was thinking I'm not quite sure how the you know how people are really going to react to this because of those build-up yeah. circumstances so he was definitely held I think in great affection rightly so, so so where does he stand in the when we think of mm. the I guess let's take it post-1945 mm. liberal SDP Lib Dem yeah. leaders I mean, there's not a huge number but in mm. terms of those um, post-45 yeah. leaders where does he stand is he is he right at the top I think I guess you could make a case for Joe Grimmond, mm -hmm. uh, in the, and Joe and Paddy's record is quite similar in many ways, both taking over the party at a real nadir, rescuing the party from oblivion, and 
seeing the party through a major recovery. There was a third leader who did a very similar arc with his leadership career. His, however, ended up being on trial for conspiracy to murder, so we'll uh, leave <clears throat> the third one yeah. unnamed for the moment. So that remains a unique example. <laughs> it's a unique example. So, uh, so Paddy and Joe, I think there are very good arguments that can be made for both. But if you look at the extent of the recovery and what it culminated in, I think Paddy achieved more. Partly, you might say, to luck of wider circumstance. But in particular, you know, the party uh, grew hugely in terms of MPs and councillors under Paddy's time. And also, although I think a lot of us have slightly mixed feelings about the strategy of cozying up quite so much to Labour pre-1997 and in 1998 and 1999, it did result through the Cook-McLennan talks in a major programme of constitutional reform, which even you know, several years now of conservative, one-party conservative government hasn't undone. Yeah. Things like devolution yeah. in London, in Scotland, in Wales, introduce introduction of proportional representation in various forms for all of those devolved elections, PR for European Parliament, elections, Freedom of Information Act. There's quite a long list there of reforms which pretty much have stuck. I mean, yeah. I think the only one really that has not stuck is PR for European Parliament elections, and that's for a very different, <laughs> a very different reason. It's not the PR bit of the elections that's being yeah. undone. Um, so I think I think I probably would put him as the most sort of successful leader of the party uh, in that sense. I don't know how does he rate to you as a I guess slightly more of an outsider uh, through through his time as leader than me. Yeah, I mean, well, it's hard to disagree with that assessment. Really, he's uh, I and mean, I guess if you're looking at that long term influence and in terms of the um, uh, not just the way um, uh, he paved the way for power, though that matters, but also I guess the strategy which we still have to an extent of how you build up and it wasn't him obviously who single-handedly came up with this either but um, he helped deliver it as leader the way in which you do build up from um, grassroots that you do have an air war as well but not be overly reliant on Mm. that air war and professionalise the party at the same time Um, now I don't know the Grimmond era um, Liberal Party well enough to know to what extent Joe Grimmond got involved in the guts of that Mm. but um, with someone like Paddy, you definitely had that sense that, uh, uh, he, as he didn't enjoy Parliament that much, mm. um, that sense of wanting to really get into, um, to be a campaigner, a grassroots mm. campaigner, and to live that reality, uh, I think is, uh, is something that the party still aspires to. Mm. Whereas my impression of Joe Grimmond is that he was that national leader, mm. he did lead the troops with the sound of gunfire and all the rest of it. Um, but also he saw the value of Parliament and uh, was very much a parliamentary party leader as well. Yes, I think, that, I think that's fair to say. And, and I think perhaps also Grimmond was uh, po- possibly stronger on the intellectual revival mm-hmm. of liberalism during his time as leader. I think Paddy definitely understood the need for that and talked about it quite often, uh, but didn't have really that same depth of... Uh, sort of policy and philosophical knowledge and expertise. But he was an up and at him doer. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Joe Grimmond a thinker, maybe more than a doer, and Paddy more a doer than maybe a thinker. Yeah, Yeah, that's probably quite a good way way of putting it. Now, you mentioned uh, sort of briefly there sort of Paddy's strategy during his time as Mm -hmm. leader, which in a not-too-awkward segue takes (laughs) us to the question of what the party's current strategy should be and I know there was a particularly some as ever Stephen Bush always has interesting things that he said but I think he recently said something about the sort of Lib Dem strategy and dilemma over our past that mm. particularly caught your eye Stephen. Yes uh, I mean I think it was uh, and actually 
brief segue there in terms of, of course, it was Paddy. Segway from the segue. Uh, segue to the segue. Um, so many segues. Lambert would be delighted. Um, that uh, I, I, I should maybe just interject in case anyone is wondering quite what they, this refers to. The uh, former Liberal Democrat MP Lembit Opic once took part in a little PR drive for the Segway, a now mostly forgotten attempt to transport innovation. And I still remember this very well because this involved him going on a Segway up and down the hill uh, in Bournemouth, outside the Bournemouth yeah. Conference Centre yeah. when the Liberal Democrat Conference was there in Bournemouth. Now, whilst Lembit was going up and down the hill on the Segway, at the same time I was in a, must have been a Federal Conference Committee meeting, in a room which had a big window looking out over the path. And, and there was this weird moment in the meeting where half the room, the room that could see out the window, was clearly mesmerised watching something go by <laughs> out the window. And the other half of the room was thinking, should I be paying attention to what's being said or should I look around to see what's going on behind me? Yeah. Anyway, back to your segue. It's not like Lembit to have been a distraction from uh, key party matters, is it? Um, not at all. <laughs> um, so actually, my segue to the segue was, of course, uh, and we'll, I doubt it's come on to the B word Brexit, but of course it was Paddy under Paddy, that um, uh, the idea of a referendum mm. on uh, making it a straight in or, out, in or out referendum over the Maastricht Treaty um, kind of burrowed its way into the lived end consciousness and to one degree or another mm. stayed in the party's policy making from then on. So, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, under him we celebrated his successes, but also the, there is that aspect mm. of uh, championing a referendum on Europe, um, which... Uh, Perhaps came back and bit us as well. But the, uh, the segue, the initial segue, was um, Stephen mm. Bush, um, political editor of the New Statesman, really astute commentator. Um, though he comes from uh, a Labour sympathising tradition, he is a very astute observer of all political parties. And um, his comment was after Vince Cable's um, recent intervention at Prime Minister's Questions. He only gets one a month. And uh, this one was on um, the uh, Theresa May's... Uh, appeal for cross-party talks, and he was saying, "Look, you know, the Lib Dems are um, uh, have a, a, a track record mm. um, of working with other parties, and of course, got lots of jeers from um, Labour and Conservative benches." And, mm. and Stephen Bush's comment was this: um, "Liberal Democrats still haven't worked out how best to explain the coalition." Vince Cable used a rare question to ask the Prime Minister about how she would resolve, how she would work with other parties to resolve the Brexit crisis, but was derailed by jeering when he mentioned his time in coalition. The Liberal Democrats still don't have a strong, unified line on their time in government, and it really shows at times like this when it gets thrown in their faces by all sides. So, fair comment or not? Um, I would disagree with one detail, I think, in, in that, although not with the overall point. I think the suggestion that we don't have sort of one strong, unified line implies that there are various different lines which implies a degree of thought and diversity of opinion, which I think is maybe a little generous to the party, because I think one of the things uh, that we certainly saw in the 20, uh, the previous, the, but one leadership election, so the 2015 leadership election, was the party didn't really give any serious thought to the relative merits of having, as the, as the next leader, an MP who had been a minister in the coalition mm -hmm. government versus an MP who hadn't been a minister. It cropped up a little bit. Uh, but it, th it, that wasn't really one of the big choices that people felt was in front of them. Um, and I think that reflects a degree to which the party doesn't really think that hard about this issue. And it'll be interesting to see with the almost certain leadership election that will yeah. take place this year, because Vince Cable said in the autumn that he will step down when Brexit is resolved, which either means he's staying on as leader till 2047, or means <laughs> it will be at some point this year that he will step down. And we're likely to have a field that features at least one person who was a minister 
during the coalition years. And Joe Swinson, least, I assume. Joe Swinson or Ed Davey. Or Ed Davey. Um, yeah. And then at least one person, most likely Leila Moran, but possibly Christine Jardine um, or another, who was not only not a minister, but not an MP. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so we'll have, in that sense, a really clear choice in that if people think either being really up for defending the record mm-hmm. or really wanting to move on from it, if that's a really important choice, then that should be a huge factor in who ends up winning the leadership uh, election. I okay. suspect, though, once again, people will just sort of not really want to think it through and it'll just be <laughs> a little issue that pops up, bubbles along in the background. But I okay. might be wrong. For, and not just for sake of argument, I'm going to disagree with you, I think, and also disagree with Stephen Bush, unusually, um, in that... I actually, I, don't we have a reasonably clear, it may not have been um, uh, clear-sighted and thought-through and uh, planned, but don't we have a reasonably clear line that most party members can sign up to um, about our time in coalition, which was, uh, yes, there was lots of negatives, but we actually did get some stuff out of the coalition, and we certainly stopped the Conservatives doing some of the worst, and at least we stepped up to the plate in the national interest. Isn't that... a isn't that relatively simple to explain line, um, one that most party members would accept and would get a reasonable hearing mm. from that segment of the electorate that's prepared to listen to us at all at the moment? I think there's that probably is the line that most activists would, for example, default to in a canvassing conversation on the doorstep. Mm-hmm. The reason I don't describe that line quite as generously, <laughs> I guess, as yourself, is, is that... Each of the elements in that line don't work brilliantly. And so if that is really the line that we collectively think is, is the best line, mm-hmm. you sort of say, well, partly we have to really work out what's the thing we have to promote about what we achieved in our time in government. Because most people, most of the time, know very little about yeah. politics. Yeah. Yeah. So y- y- what's the thing that is going to be the totemic thing? That and also the thing about the defeat in... Uh, huge debate in 2015 mm. lots of people took it as a very kind of personal rejection mm. of Liberal Democrats and it was because people hated us mm. uh, but most of the analysis I've seen mm. is more that people just thought we hadn't done anything at all and that we disappeared from view absolutely so it was yeah. more about the fact that no one saw anything mm. from the yeah. Liberal Democrats rather than that everyone hated yes. us I mean some people did but it, yeah. that wasn't a majority view necessarily it was just we weren't there exactly and that reinforces the point all the more that if if you sort of take that view that you set out and for what it's worth i think you know it's it's the view that i would share as well um but to make it really successful as part of the party strategy part of that has to be well okay what's the bit that we're going to say we're really proud Mm -hmm. of what we achieved likewise what's the real clarity about what are we going to apologize for and what are we going to say about okay we've learned this is therefore what we would do differently in the future Mm -hmm. Because what we fell into in, say, 2017, for understandable reasons, but is why I think we've not really grappled with this issue properly, was the, OK, what we've learned from is we'll be very clear in the 2017 election, there's no way we'll do a deal with the Tories. Yeah. But that, and that sort of works as a short-term tactical thing. But if our lesson is that we are never going to do a deal with the Tories, that both really says, well, we're sort of just an adjunct to the Labour Party which yeah. I think if you put it that way, you take the, the argument to the next step, then a lot of people do begin to get, oh, actually, maybe, maybe you're right, we need to think about the earlier stuff a bit more. Yeah. And, of course, it also raises a question about could we ever really get a good deal? If we say to Labour, look, you're the only people we'll ever do a deal with, now please give us a good deal, that doesn't sound like a great negotiating position. So I think there are lots of issues yeah. around that general position, which, although it is the one that I, I think is the one that I would pick, 
I certainly don't feel that we have thought through the implications of it properly and therefore acted on what the implications are well enough either. Yeah. So my... So, okay, fair enough. So my disagreement with Stephen Bush, my disagreement with you, uh, it's not a big disagreement, but I, I, I guess a challenge to you on the uh, how much Vinistu being a, having been a minister in the coalition mm. is actually, because will the public necessarily have known that Joe Swinson was a minister? Mm. I mean, to your average punter. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, my, one aware? of my favourite... They'll know that she's a Lib Dem, yeah. and Lib Dem from yeah. the coalition with the Tories, and they will have a view yeah. on that, and that's as far yeah. as it goes. The distinction about whether or not they were a serving yeah. minister or even an MP at the time yeah. will surely get lost. To an extent, that's definitely true. I mean, my favourite stat from the 2017 election was a couple of weeks into the election campaign, YouGov found one in five voters, and in fact, more to be precise, what this one in five of people who were willing to take part in a YouGov survey about politics <laughs> couldn't name the Prime Minister. Right. So it is... Every, I have never that come across... I have never come across anyone in politics who... Uh, does anything other than overestimate how much the public knows about politics. Yeah. It is, you know, however much you think yeah. the public knows. And, and it's one of the common things where people say in the Lib Dems complain about, oh, we're just talking about Brexit far too much, we need to talk about lots of other issues. No, the public won't notice that. They barely notice the Lib Dems. A good chunk of people struggle to know who the Prime Minister is. So, in one sense, you're absolutely right. However, the reason I think you are right, but your point is irrelevant, <laughs> is that if you think about the dynamic of, say, how a media interview plays out that if somebody was a minister that can be thrown at them in an interview mm. and likewise the ability to sort of move on from what we did in coalition is a lot less is a lot lower if you are a, you know, a former minister so although in the, the direct impact as you say I think is relatively low in practice people's knowledge of the existence of the Liberal Democrats gets mediated through things like the media and through things like media interviews, and therefore it makes a difference in that sense because how you can perform in the interview is quite different and the sorts yeah. of questions you'll get asked is quite, are quite different. But wasn't that part of the uh, Tim Farron leadership mm. pitch, which was around tuition fees, was, you know, mm. I, you know I'll have clean hands yeah. because I voted against mm. tuition fees rise, and therefore the party you know, will be able to put that behind it, and, and that's slightly unfair mm. to Tim because it was a bit more sophisticated mm. a pitch than that. But nonetheless, mm. there was that argument that, you know, I have clean hands, um, so uh, we can put fees behind us under my leadership. And, of course, that wasn't the case, was it? No, and, and, and I think it, it didn't turn out that way for... Well, for one major reason not to do with this issue, which is the questions around theology, although they sort of, yeah. I think, in a sense, reflect my my rebuttal to your accurate point, <laughs> in that you know people didn't know what Tim's theology was, yeah, and the voters sure. didn't know, but if it's sat there, if it's something the media are then going to ask you about, it then becomes an issue. Yeah. So, um, so, but... The, 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 the reason I think Tim's leadership in that sense is on the sort of broader strategy and coalition question, a good warning to whoever the next future leader is, is that Tim combined that sort of clean pair of hands, didn't vote for tuition fees, etc., with also saying in the leadership contest, coalition was the right thing to do and he would mm -hmm. do it again. But then early in the 2017 general election saying he would never do a deal with the Tories. So I think there was a real lack of of that strategic thought and consistency about, okay, if this is our position, what are the implications of that and how do we deal with the implications? Okay. Mm. Okay. <laughs> You're not completely convinced. I'm not convinced, yeah. I, mean, I, I, just, uh, I, I guess where I'm coming from is um, uh, the extent to which um, we're in control of our uh, destiny, I suppose that's the bigger point. Yeah. Uh, and it comes back to actually, you know, the Paddy mm. point again, um, 
notwithstanding the huge amount of work and thought and effort that went into the party's revival mm. in the 90s, like you said, it was also a bit fortunate in terms of circumstances mm. of what was happening to the John Major government, mm. John Smith's death leading mm. to Tony Blair's mm. um, rise to power, the fact that there were there was still a three-party mm. system mm. Um, in place, uh, and though the Greens had briefly surged in 89 during the European elections, that had fallen back again, so there was a fairly clear path. We're in a much more complex um, system now, um, so it's uh, in which the Lib Dems' irrelevance becomes a kind of perpetual um, catch-22. Um, you know, well, possibly. We I, don't I, matter because the media yeah. doesn't pay attention to us. The media doesn't pay attention to us because actually we don't matter in terms yeah. of what's going to break the Brexit deadlock. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's the interesting question for the new leader and the party as a whole, because our success is very much not just about the leader. Um, but because although we are in many ways doing less well now, opinion poll ratings lower than except the real you know, post-merger Nardia, smaller local government base, fewer MPs, etc. I think the wider circumstances are much more positive for the party because we have uh, particularly spectacularly unpopular leaders in their own different ways of both of the other main parties, yeah. a particularly large ideological gap between them, and a major national issue in Brexit in which the Liberal Democrats have a distinctive stance that's different from so in a way... The well, wasn't that true in the 2017... I'm normal with what you're saying mm. is true, but it was also true in the 2017 election and didn't... Oh, absolutely. So, but, Didn't pan out particularly well for uh, us. Uh, but I think that reflects how badly we ended up attempting to ex, you know, make good use of that opportunity. Okay. Um, and I think I would say that partly in a way that's slightly critical of Tim, mm-hmm. theology. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, but also the bit which I think, you know, Tim's defence of what happened is absolutely fair is also the election happened sort of sooner than people were expecting Mm. and had there been more time for the rebuilding of the party to take place at the grassroots etc that there would have been a better opportunity you know and maybe his maybe his leadership would have done you know ended up panning out a lot better i suspect in a way his leadership was probably tragically doomed because the better that he he did the more successful the party was the more the questions of his theology would have been picked yeah. over. Um, so, for example, one of the things that, as far as I'm aware, none of the media did was send journalists up to the church that he attends on a Sunday to make notes of what the pre- uh, what the priest is saying in the sermon mm-hmm. and to then run sort of shock horror stories off the back of that, which is just what would have happened had he been that much more successful and that much more popular. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, you know, some of those underlying organisational things is, I mean, our local government base is bigger, our membership is bigger, this racial supporter scheme is going to, I'm sure, draw in many more people. So there are some elements in which that, you know, our ability to make good use of that wider environment is stronger now than it was under Tim's leadership. The big question, though, is I, I think is very much whether the party and, and, and whoever the next leader is, is able to make use of that environment in a much more successful way than in the end it turned out Tim was able to. Um, and, I mean, it's a what if, we will never know, but the had the general election not been called early had the Manchester Gorton by-election gone ahead. You know, the early canvas figures were weirdly good. You know, the trends in the canvas returns were remarkably positive in Manchester Gorton. Um, Now, you look at the 2017 election result, general election result in Manchester Gorton, and you think, the Dems absolutely nowhere. You know, so far out of sight. Uh, But there is an alternative history in which... Early general election wasn't called. Lib Dems did spectacularly well in matches of Gorton, gained loads of seats in local council elections. That gave the party a huge boost. Um, yeah. And then, as I say, I fear disaster would have loomed 
at a later date. But yeah. m- maybe we were very close to getting it getting it right and, and really prospering at least for a while. So yeah. good reason to be optimistic prospects. about yeah, what okay. might happen this time. Okay, fair enough. Um, maybe we should just sort of finally wrap up with a sort of a question about politics outside the UK. Okay. Uh, because That's I think people area. in Britain, when we think about politics outside the UK... This is a bugbear of yours, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, rarely venture beyond the US. Yeah. And so I've already seen bits of coverage talking excitedly about the Californian postal system. Uh, because, <laughs> as I'm sure, you know, fellow it's US election geek... in terms of the news that you uh, uh, come no, across. But, <laughs> but, it, but this is just classic US, sorry, UK political bubble. Is we get very excited about American elections, and they are quite dramatic and all of that. And so one of the changes in the Democrat uh, sort of... Um, uh, primary and caucus schedule for next time round is the Californian primary has been brought forward but also this is the geeky little detail huge numbers of people in California vote by post so the postal ballots actually will hit doormats and start getting filled in and returned even earlier and so there's a whole question about actually our New Hampshire and Iowa are basically irrelevant because people there's no chance to get momentum out of doing well in those because right. the Californian votes are already then being cast yeah. so this is the sort of thing that we okay. can talk about and yet what we don't talk about are the massively important elections in other countries. So just to give you an example, think how little British media coverage there was last year of the internal contest in the ruling party in Germany to pick mm-hmm. an- the successor to Angela Merkel, basically the next leader of the most powerful and influential country in the European yeah. Union. Almost no coverage. And yet we get terribly excited about particular, you know, Peter, Beto O'Rourke. I mean, he didn't even win in Texas. You know, we get huge amounts of coverage about someone who doesn't even win compared to the person who is going to be the next leader yeah. of the most powerful country in Europe at a point at which Europe is clearly an absolutely dominating issue for Britain's future. Um, so, yes, it is a bugbear of mine. And fair enough. But um, I guess it's my role to kind of... Uh, to be the little be, Englander be bit, here and uh, insist that all politics gonna, is Westminster. I was going to say contrarian, um, but I suppose little Englander is pretty much a synonym. Um, <laughs> So, uh, I mean, surely it's, it's not that illogical that there is um, so much uh, focus on US elections for, I guess, three reasons. Uh, one, uh, just Anglophone um, tradition. So the fact that, you know, they speak the same language, more or less, as us, yeah. means there's no need for translation. Yeah. And it's much easier to follow um, yourself, either, you know, watching debates or uh, to be able to read the New York yeah. Times online or whatever it might be. Uh, you know, read Nate Silver's blogs. You know, you can you can follow U.S. elections. So language is um, plausible, but easy. an argument I will demolish in okay. a moment. <laughs> you can follow it much more easily. Yeah. Second of all, um, then, and the reason why it distinguishes mm. itself from uh, other Anglophone mm. countries, such as Canada mm. or Australia, for example, where you might mm. say, well, if it's just the yeah. language, why don't we yeah. focus on them as much? Um, I suppose it's because uh, the electoral system, being as binary as ours, tends to be yeah. as well. So there are more clear-cut um, uh, outcomes, yeah. um, which tends to be therefore much more cliffhanger uh, yeah. and much more exciting to watch. You know, the fact you have primaries and then you have um, the general election yeah. in the states, etc. It's a system that people, on one level, understand because it is first past the post, winner takes all, yeah. in a way that parliamentary systems aren't. Mm. And the third one is to, then just to share culture, which I suppose is a um, just springs yeah. from the the language as well. The fact that you know uh, people like me have watched yeah. the West Wing umpteen times. Yeah. 
and so we even have you a are kind part of, of the problem. Uh, we have a I've kind of common language around, um, you know, the appropriations yeah. committee that would be. Uh, I wouldn't have a yeah. clue what the equivalent of the appropriations yeah. committee is in the German yeah. uh, federal system, or indeed yeah. if there is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I, 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 your, your, your language point is plausible, and I, I will plead guilty to it being a reason why I pay disproportionate attention to elections in certain countries. I think, you know, it is actually a very important practical factor. However, I would cite three countries, uh, Australia, Israel and India, mm -hmm. uh, all of which have got elections coming up this year, all of which have widespread coverage of their politics in the English language. Mm -hmm. uh, Australia, obviously, English is the official language, slightly different situations in India and Israel, but English is a major language used by lots of online newspapers and so on. And you can watch interviews with politicians in the English language, etc. So, mm -hmm. so, secondly, all three of those elections will, in different ways, be exciting or important. I mean, Australian politics is Australia is the standout soap sure. opera yeah, yeah. of politics. I mean, any yeah. country that can have a political scandal because a whole load of politicians discover they secretly were foreigners. I mean, that is, you know, I, <laughs> I don't think even the thick of it or, or the West Wing have, have really got close to the actual absurdities of the Australian big political scandal yeah. of the last year. But also Australian politics is important because Australia is normally one of the most, or rather has been several times in the last few years, one of the very few powerful voices against taking effective action on climate change yeah. so yeah. what happens in australian politics does matter to us lots of shared culture between britain and australia mm -hmm. lots of australians living and working in britain lots of, and vice versa uh, with india I, and i think this is something that the media i don't really fully appreciate that there are lots of habits that assume that india is a another foreign country as opposed to having woken up to just how many personal links there are, family links there are yeah, now between India and, and the UK. If you think how little attention a natural disaster in India gets compared to a possible impending might-hit-this-weekend hurricane in the US gets, mm -hmm. it's hard to believe that mm -hmm. if... UK newsrooms were more diverse, that there wouldn't be a, a better understanding of which countries actually are people yeah. Britain are really interested in. Yeah. Um, and, and if you take the example of Israel, actually when I blogged about this, I left, left Israel off my list of possibly interesting foreign elections this year, because I'm not quite sure how, whether the Israeli election will be important in the sense that it strikes me that Israeli politics is so divided mm -hmm. that it's hard to see the outcome being other than something quite similar to what yeah. we have at the moment, yeah. even if the Prime Minister changes. I'm not convinced that that will. But, in theory, certainly, is you know Israel and the Israeli government is central to a massive range of international issues, which both have huge direct knock-on effects, and also which there is a large chunk of British political culture is particularly interested in, uh, you know, of, of different um, uh, uh, sort of ethnic or religious you know, groups around the world, you know, levels of interest in human rights abuses against them, Palestinians get vastly more attention in, mm. sort of, in sort of British political culture than similarly sized or larger groups in other places around the world. And you could argue about, I mean, it, it becomes a horrific sort of a desiccated accountancy exercise as to you know, which is the most important set of human rights abuses one should pay attention to. But I think it is fair to say uh, that the, sort of the, the treatment of Palestinians gets gets um, a, an unusually large amount of attention and it particularly passionately drives perhaps a surprisingly large number of people in British politics compared to similar issues in other parts sure. of the world, particularly other parts of the world where often there are rather greater numbers of personal connections between you know, people living, living in Britain and in those parts of the world.
Okay, you've done a reasonable job of persuading me on that, especially actually. But we are going to spend most of the rest of the year talking about British politics um, and a bit of US and ignoring those three countries, aren't we? And presumably Canada as well, because. Uh, their election is this year, isn't it? General election is this yeah, year. Yeah, and, so, and, and um, for Liberal Democrats, that yeah. will be quite interesting because at the moment it's, oh, Justin Trudeau, rah, 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 let's copy what he did, yeah. which might become a little bit less persuasive if he does badly in the Canadian election. So it might have a little bit of a geeky knock-on effect on British politics in that Indeed. respect. We seem to have reached a natural pause. That was a natural pause, wasn't it? And we've not even really discussed Brexit. And you know, so, exactly. the week, I, th- I think we should the week definitely of the historic, uh, the worst ever parliamentary defeat by a government ever on its flagship policy. And, and there are loads of other political podcasts out there with excellent, incisive <sighs> analysis. But we are the one that brought our dear listener. That is our US Indian. Team. Australian, yeah. Canadian, okay. Israeli politics, and the California oh, postal but, okay, system. Okay, sorry, this was the point I meant to mention. Um, <laughs> on the uh, foreign, le- France gets a yeah. lot of coverage. Uh, certainly, the last mm. French election, and generally speaking, French presidential elections do get a fair amount of mm. coverage. Not, uh, I would accept, not as much yeah. as the US, but they do get a fair amount. And certainly, with the Macron insurgency mm. last time, um, you know, there were people who were watching the debates live and tweeting yes, along that's, with that's it definitely in, in a way that would happen in the um, US system yeah. as well. So does it partly just depend on excitement and the fact that... Um, you know, well, that come on, Australian a... politi- politicians discovering secretly they were yeah. foreigners. I mean, it should Is that just a time difference thing, then? Poss- poss- well, actually, that's, that's an interesting point. It may well be partly that. Um, and although the figures are mythical about how London is the third biggest French city, or whatever you know that that, yeah. those are, yeah. that there, it is also true there are a lot of pe- uh, French people in London, and I, I think that may have a bit of a knock-on impact as well in terms of, uh, for example, if you are a political editor um, or a, or a journalist and you're looking to you know to find someone who can who you can talk to about about something or to interview or whatever, then it may be that it's a little bit easier to find those personal connections mm-hmm. as well. The time zones help yeah. uh, help as well. But yeah, Fra- France is is the interesting outlier in that in that respect. Not an outlier. It's a presidential system, which is what I said in my second point. I think you'll find. I win that point. So on that grudging note <laughs> of concession, thank you very much for listening to this our second pilot podcast, possibly with slightly better sound quality than our first pilot in which case if you have braved this one thank you very much uh, you can find this podcast in all sorts of slightly improbable places online please do subscribe through your normal podcast service because if we do decide to make a regular thing of this uh, the future episodes will pop up automatically in the feed and please do let us have your feedback thank you very much for listening take care